You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, my name is Randall. I'm one of the leaders here. And listen, up front, I just gotta, I gotta claim this. I am not an avid fan of track and field. I know very little about it, but thanks to YouTube and the algorithm, I got very interested over this past like month. So um, some of you may know, you may follow this. This may be your jam and maybe your sport. For me, if it doesn't have two pedals and two wheels, I'm out, right? But the World Athletic Championship was happening down in Eugene. Um, anybody follow that, right? And so what was, what, so like I, it started sparking up on YouTube for me. So I started kind of doing the, the deep dive, tracking with what was happening. Now, a remarkable year, a lot of world records, records were broken. Like for the guys, they would break them within tenths of seconds. But the remarkable thing was happening with the women, specifically like the United States women. Um, they were breaking their own records. They were breaking world records by seconds, which is remarkable, right? So I got kind of hooked into this one athlete. Her name is Sydney McLaughlin. Now, if you're a fan of this, you probably know who Sydney is. She's 22 years old. I think her main event is the 400 meter hurdles. Um, She does like the 400 meter relay too. She, in her qualifying runs, broke not only her own personal record, but she also held the world record in that event. And so every qualifying run she did, she kept breaking that. And then in the finals, she broke it, her own personal record and the world record again by like four or five seconds, which is remarkable, right? So I was like, who is this gal? Like, what is she about? I dug in, um, she is such an outlier. She's such a, a remarkable young woman. When you realize, and she's got a litany of like records behind her. I don't have time to list all of them off. That's not really the point. You realize though, in just a quick like cursory study of who she is, she holds in her home state every world record like in that state and beyond from the age of like middle school through high school. Like it's that, that's, and you realize this, like you listen to her talk, you realize she Like, this has been her dream for, like, day one. She's been chasing after this dream. She's an Olympic athlete. She's a gold medal athlete. She's been running hard after this goal her entire life, right? And and, and to add to that, she's also a person of faith. She's a follower of Jesus. And she would say that chasing after this dream and running after this goal was God's design for me. It's something that God has called me to, to faithfully live out my faith through this platform. So she's running in the right direction. And this morning, we're going to take a look at another runner who, who basically is doing the exact opposite, running in the wrong direction as far away from God's design and plans for him as he can get. So let's pray And then we're just going to jump into this probably all too familiar story of Jonah. Let me pray. Father, once again, we come before you and we come before you humbly dependent upon your presence among us this morning. We know that you are deeply invested and concerned with your saints in this space this morning. So God, would you be with us? Would you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, guide us? Convict us, comfort us, bring us hope, and enlighten the word of God to our hearts this morning. We thank you. We love you. We need your help. We depend upon you. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, so, so quick question, and I want an answer. 
For, for most of you, when you do quick word association with Jonah, what comes to mind? Just say it. Jonah? Fish. Fish. Whale. Fish. I'm going to let you all fight about if it's a fish or a whale. I don't care, right? So it's this fish, right? I get it. I mean, it's so easy for us to fixate on a fish when it comes to the story of Jonah because it's what we hear about. The fish catches a lot of our attention, right? And it, it, it kind of demands our focus in this story, which is completely understandable. I mean, imagine being an Israelite or like a Hebrew child sitting around a campfire and hearing this story for the very first time. It would be remarkable to hear that a human was swallowed by a fish. The fish in Jonah's story does make the story fantastical for sure. It elevates the story to the things of like myth and fairy tale, right? It makes it something that's going to grab your attention. Now, now hold that, just hold that. I'm not saying it's a myth or a fairy tale, but we would do well to, to look at it like that also. Um, the fish in that story is the detail that we lock on to the most, but I don't think it's the detail that makes the story that interesting or it's not what makes it the most intriguing. I mean, after all, the fish is only mentioned in like three verses, right? And I think there's a danger in this. I think there's a danger in us paying so much attention to what God's doing inside of a fish that we miss what God's doing in Jonah, right? So there's a fish, but we're not even really going to talk about a fish today because if it's not a fish, then what is the book of Jonah really about? Well, it's about a lot of things. We don't get to preach in one sermon about all the things that Jonah is about. We're going to attempt to answer that question, though, this morning. What's the book of Jonah about? What's the grand narrative of Jonah? And in answering that question, our goal is this. It's simply that you would grow in your affection for Jesus, that you would mature in what it means for you to follow Jesus. Now, for those of you that are Bible nerds in the room, any Bible nerds? Anybody know where I'm probably going to go here? You'll know that the book of Jonah isn't the first time that we actually hear about this prophet Jonah. You've got to go all the way back to the book of 2 Kings. That's where we're first introduced to Jonah in verse 23 and 25 of chapter 14. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. So we meet a few people here. We get this guy, Jeroboam Jr. He'd become the king of Israel. And when you dig into like that period of Israel's history with the kings, he's like in the line of King David and Solomon. He's the 13th king after Solomon. Um, the, the kingdom has now been divided. What you realize pretty quick is that this guy's reputation is really in line with all of the other kings of Israel. The author of Kings uses this very specific and very often repeated phrase of Israel's kings, which is that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? The kings were tasked with communicating to the people covenant faithfulness and worship of the one true God. And Jeroboam Jr. had been leading people away from that. He had been failing in his one task. He had one job 
and he sucks at it, right? He's leading people in the opposite direction, right? But despite his kind of constant failure, at least in the story that we just took a quick look at, he achieves some measure of success by restoring this like strategic piece of land that would secure Israel's border. And guess who God used to broker that deal, right? Well, let's look at the last part of verse 25 there, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. It's our boy Jonah. He shows up in this story. So when we first meet Jonah, even though we're given very little details about him, we can at least see this. He's faithful as a prophet, and he's actually successful as a prophet. He was used by God to strengthen his people, to restore their land, to secure their borders, and to return them to covenant faithfulness. So that's important in Jonah's story. So far, what we know about Jonah from Kings is that he's a faithful guy who's going to serve God, that loves his people, and is going to carry out that task of calling his people back into this covenant life with God. So honestly, Jonah, to the people, he's a bit of a rock star, right? But, but that doesn't really comport with the Jonah that we know in our story, the story of Jonah that we also pay so much attention to. So let's just jump in, right? And while there's no way that we have time to like work verse by verse by verse through this, we're going to do this. We're going to attempt to kind of cover it. We're going to cover a bit from each chapter so we can kind of get the big picture of the story, and then I'll read some verses and make some points in there, okay? So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 3. Let's look at this again. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, so that's important, right? God's word is coming to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, right? So you've got the word of God coming to Jonah, and then you've got Jonah saying, nope, and fleeing God's presence, right? This is God speaking to Jonah, and he gives Jonah this very, like, specific message to deliver to these people, the Ninevites. Now, none of this is out of the ordinary for Jonah, right? He's already proven himself to be a faithful prophet, to be successful in his endeavors, but this time for Jonah, as the word of the Lord comes to him, it's just going to hit different for him, right? Because this time, instead of God calling him to his people that, he, that Jonah favors, that Jonah knows, like that's comfortable for him. He knows that culture, and he believes that his role as a prophet is to call God's people back to this. But this time, instead of God sending them to his people, God is sending him to this sworn and notorious enemy, of Israel, the dreaded Ninevites. So real quick, and I'm going to give you just the PG version of the story here, but the Ninevites, which are a part of this vast and powerful Assyrian empire, were simply evil and wicked, right? They, the way that they treated their enemies was ruthless. No quarter, no sanction given. They committed all sorts of atrocious deeds. They garnered this reputation for violence. They had a proclivity to torture. They were abject violators of human rights. They committed horrific war crimes, right? Now, I'm not even going into the details of what that means, but when you dig into it, and you should, as long as you're not faint of heart, it is horrific. You would realize once you study what they were about, 
that, that they sit in infamy as one of the most brutal and violent empires to have ever existed. So when God was like, hey, Jonah, Jonah was like, yeah, I know this. What do you want, God? I'm in. I'm going to go. That's what I always do. And God was like, well, you need to call a camel Uber and head up to Nineveh, right? You can see why Jonah had some hesitation, right? He knew, like, the reputation of the Ninevites precedes them. He didn't exactly welcome the task that God had given him. He has no desire to go to Nineveh, right? One, his instinct for self-survival was incredibly high. We shouldn't miss this also. Jonah was just kind of a bit of a racist. Like, he did not believe that these people somehow were due or worthy of God's grace and compassion. He looks at other image bearers and says, no, they are other and they are not worthy. So instead of going the 550 miles to Nineveh, Jonah preaches and, and just, excuse me, he pieces out in the opposite direction, right? Nineveh would have been like northeast from where he was, but he goes west. He boards this big ship headed to the port city of Tarshish, which is like 2,500 miles away from where he was. It's the furthest point that you could travel in the known world at the time. So for Jonah, this is an outright rejection of the word of God. It's this overt disobedience to the very clear and yet simple command of God. Get up, go to Nineveh, and preach, right? And because of this rebellion, Jonah makes up his mind that he'd rather run from God and flee from his presence than be obedient and face God. So Jonah's disobedience reveals something important for us here. His sin of disobedience, I think, is rooted in something deep in Jonah's life. He's kind of memory-hold all of the good things of God. He is fundamentally failing to believe in this moment that God is good, and he does not see God's commands as good or trustworthy to him. He doesn't trust that God's plans are bigger and somehow just smarter than his own. So listen, Jonah didn't need to understand the why of, of God sending him to Nineveh, right? That's true for us. Like, I think God shows up for us, and we're like, maybe I'll get on board with this, but why? But why, right? Listen, he simply needed to trust that God is good and that his commands are good. Now, this is rooted in something else. We're going to get to it when we get to, like, chapter 3, I think. But we'll see that, that, that Jonah has... I think, just this sin of unbelief in his heart. He's, he's not believing the right things about God. He's not trusting in those things about God. So as this continues out, right, as this scene begins to unfold, I think that we should see this. I think that we should see that in Jonah, it takes us right back to the garden. Like, look at the way that Jonah's acting. Like, and think about this. When God gave his first kids, Adam and Eve, a very clear and simple command, just don't eat from this tree. You mean all the trees? Nope. There's thousands that you can eat from, just not this one. Do all those other trees have everything that we need? We can trust that you're going to provide for us? Yep. But what about this one tree? Why can't we eat from it, right? So, so then they decide to not trust God. They're deceived by the serpent. And they don't trust what God had commanded them to do. They failed to see that what God was commanding to them was what was best for them. 
Jonah failed to believe that God is good and that his commands are also good, just like God's first kids. And in his disobedience, just like the garden, he thought it would be better to flee God's presence than obey God's commands. So let's just keep jamming here. Remember, the remainder of chapter one, right? We see Jonah. Here's what we get because we're not going to have the time to look at all of it. But what we get for the remainder of chapter one is Jonah coming under the judgment of God for his disobedience, which is what Jonah deserves. It's not popular for us to believe that, but that disobedience deserves judgment. So ultimately, Jonah couldn't flee God's presence, right? He couldn't escape the tempest of God's judgment. He's on this boat, right? And God brings this storm. Jonah and everyone else on that boat then is experiencing now the sovereignty of God in a very intense and stirring way. God's even going to use nature to accomplish his will and purpose for Jonah and for the Ninevites. They learn that God is sovereign over all things, right? So everybody's freaking out. They're like, we're not going to make it through this giant storm in this little boat. And the sailors find themselves right in the middle of the chaos that Jonah has created through his disobedience. So they're, they're hucking everything overboard. They're like, we got to lighten up the load. So they just start tossing everything overboard, whatever it's going to take, right? They're caught in this terrifying storm. They're fearing for their very lives. All of their efforts to save themselves come up short. Even their desperate pleas to their gods go unanswered. They exhaust every possible option to save themselves. But in the end, they couldn't prevent God from doing what he desired to do. No matter how many gods they cried out to, they all proved impotent against God's plans for Jonah and the Ninevites. Now, while all of this is going on, this chaotic scene, sailors are test, they're like tossing their precious cargo. They're probably going to get paid to deliver some of that stuff. They don't care. They just want to make it through this. They're freaking out. What's our boy Jonah doing, right? Jonah's downstairs in the belly of this ship taking a nap, sleeping like a baby, right? So the sailors go down, they decide to wake Jonah up, and then they cast lots, which is this ancient version of eeny, meeny, miny, moe, right? And in an effort to figure out, like, who caused this horrific storm, right? They, they're like, man, if we can cast these lots, we'll figure out who it is, who's to blame, right? And then just in another display of God's sovereignty, the lot, of course, which is like a die, like it fell to Jonah, revealing that Jonah is the one who's causing this calamity, right? Ultimately, we know that it's God, but it's Jonah's disobedience that, that is creating this. So, so the, stale, the sailors, they just start grilling Jonah with a lot of, like, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? What's your family all about? Why is this happening, right? So Jonah responds to their questions by saying this very specific thing, which is interesting. He tells them that he's a Hebrew, right? This is who I am. So, so I'm a part of the covenant community of Yahweh, and I fear God, to which they would have all said in unison, do you really fear God? Because it seems like you don't right? Because if you did fear God, it seems like you'd be heading to Nineveh, not Tarshish, right? So Jonah's response seems a bit shallow and hypocritical because, because what's he doing at the precise moment? He's disobeying God. He's disregarding God's clear and simple commands, which is the exact opposite of fearing 
God and having reverence for him. So the sailors, they're freaking out. They're still afraid, of course. So they ask Jonah what they need to do to bring about the end of this horrific storm. And Jonah's response, it's, it's so emo, right? He's like, just throw me overboard and let me die, right? I don't know. Like, it might seem like Jonah is being so selflessly sacrificial here, but do you notice he wasn't like, before you do, I need to repent and change everything about my life and serve God. He's just like, toss me overboard and kill me. So the sailors ignore his offer. I mean, I would not want to be the one that tosses a servant of Yahweh overboard, right? There's already this massive storm. You're thinking, well, what's going to come next, right? So they just keep rowing towards shore, thinking like, we can make it. We can save ourselves. What's so interesting in this story is that the sailors, they actually show more compassion than Jonah. They make every attempt at sparing his life. And finally, when they realize we have no choice, we have to do this, um, they actually pray to Jonah's God, right? And in this prayer, they acknowledge his sovereignty. They, they pray for mercy. They ask God to not hold them accountable for, for tossing Jonah overboard. Like, we're meant to see Jonah dripping with irony here. That They are the ones in the story seeking and fearing God. When the sailors finally throw Jonah overboard, it says that the storm immediately stops, right? So at this point, no one should have any questions about who's responsible for the storm. It's God. It's Yahweh. He's causing this. So the sailors, they end up worshiping God. They offer this sacrifice to Yahweh. So I love that. I love the irony. I love the contrast here that the author is highlighting between Jonah right? A member of the covenant community of God tasked with upholding God's ethics and morals and values to a watching world to invite them into God's gracious kingdom and life with him, which is a part of that is showing compassion. Jonah's doing none of that, right? The sailors are showing more compassion than Jonah. The sailors are the ones who truly fear the Lord, not Jonah. Jonah is a member of God's covenant community, a prophet who would know and be intimate with God, and he shows no compassion, no mercy, no reverence or fear for God. These sailors who were not a part of God's covenant family, who did not know God or his ways, they show great mercy and compassion. They revere and fear Yahweh. They somehow are more faithful in this story to living out the conditions of covenant than Jonah could have ever dreamed of being accused of. So the sailors were saved by the one true living God, but what becomes of Jonah? Well, we got to technically turn to chapter 2, although it's in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 17 is, is actually a break in the section, and it pushes into chapter 2, but we'll read it here. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. So let's get to the point of chapter 2. What is chapter 2, right? Because we're not going to read all of it. Well, it's this crazy prayer from Jonah. I'd say this, you should read it. And in reading, if you just read Jonah's prayer here in chapter 2, you'd be like, man, Jonah's awesome. He loves God. He's filled with this deep commitment to God. Like what he says would lead you to believe that. So you should go and read it, right? But we don't have time today. But I, but, but I want to make a few points, right? And, and I'm going to highlight at least a few verses, right? So we've got to bookend it with chapter 117. But then we've got to go down to chapter 2, verse 10, right? Because it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. So we see God providing a fish 
to swallow Jonah, and then we see God commanding the fish to spit Jonah out, right? He's like, hey, God's like to this fish, like, hey, um, Nemo, right? You got to spit that guy out of your belly, right? Like, this is so important, right? And that, which, by the way, like, that's, that even displays God's mercy, because there was only one of two ways in which Jonah was coming out of that fish, right? So, so this is so important, because God's mercy is fully on display here for us. God did not give Jonah in that moment what he deserves. This fish is a, is a mercy, right? Jonah blatantly rebelled against the very clear and honestly simple commands of God. It's an open act of rebellion and treason. In his sin and disobedience, Jonah is defying God and he's rejecting his word. He is utterly failing here. So, so listen, this is harsh, but his rebellion was so severe that Jonah ultimately deserved death. I mean, Bible tells us that sin is death, and sin equals death, and so Jonah deserves death in this moment. But once again, God displays his sovereignty by appointing a fish to swallow Jonah and preserve his life, right? Jonah, in some ways, becomes this literal example of repentance, that God, that he's moving in one direction, a direction that God would not call him to, and then God calls him and turns him physically and moves him in the direction that God desires him to go. And that's all mercy from God. So in this prayer, right, as, as Jonah tells what happens, right, he's recounting this experience in the, the belly of this fish through this prayer. But what does he actually pray, pray right? Well, with a flair for the dramatic, Jonah uses this like very vivid imagery to recount his experience in the fish, how he cried out to God. He says, I was in the throes of death. Death was starting to encompass me. My life was fading. He's basically describing like I'm, I was having a near-death experience. I, like I was moments away from death. But then he says that God delivered me. He rescued me just when I thought that death had its grips on me. Yahweh, you brought me up from the pit and brought me up to life. God, you rescued me, man. I can't help but see how this paints like such a beautiful description of the salvation found in Jesus. Jesus delivers us from death. He delivers us from the sin and folly and the pit of destruction. We're completely and utterly unable to save ourselves. It's God and his gospel who delivers us. So what's happening with Jonah? Look at this. He ends this prayer by saying this, but with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I, I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So just like a youth group kid on the last night of summer camp, Jonah recommits his life. I will only be faithful to you. And he makes this like emphatic declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord. And how true is that in this story, right? Everybody's feeble attempts to save themselves comes up short. Salvation in this story belongs to God. Everybody saved in this story is saved by God. No other God is able to save the sailors. No one is able to save themselves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God graciously spares Jonah's life, even though he was guilty of rebelling against God's commands. His experiences in this moment, God's rich mercy. For today, the story of Jonah for us is the story of a God who relentlessly pursues 
his running people with his great grace and his great mercy. This is such good news for us because it means that there's hope for us as sinners, sinners like us who clearly disobey the very clear and simple commands of God. So let's move on to chapter 3. As you read through chapter 3, like you begin to notice like right off the bat, right? There's something at play. The author's kind of got this like kind of cool trick where like the beginning of chapter one and chapter three, they kind of mirror each other, even down to like some of the same words. It begins like very similarly, right? Like once again, like then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So, so, so God was willing here to give Jonah a second chance, right? In spite of his blatant disobedience and rebellion, God gave Jonah a second chance in that moment. He sets him now back onto the right course. Man, I hope you're encouraged by that. God is merciful. God is gracious. He forgives us, and he does not give us what we deserve, right? And the opportunity and the invitation to, to be restored to fellowship with God is filled with second and third and unlimited chances, right? And let's just, let's just keep moving here, right? Jonah's task then, because we haven't even got to that. Like, what, what, did jo- what is Jonah actually supposed to say? Like, do you remember, like, God was like, I've got something for you to say to the Ninevites. So what is that very specific message to the people of Nineveh? Um, it comes straight from God, right? So chapter 3, finally, Jonah, he arrives in Nineveh, and I want you to hear this very stirring and compelling sermon. You ready for it? So it says, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I'm going to guess that if we showed up and preached that, that would be both your least favorite sermon because of its content and your most favorite sermon because of its length, right? That's it. He just shows up and he says, yet 40, he's like, you got 40 days, 40 days Nineveh and you're done, right? That's it. And that little sermon is the entirety of the prophetic message in the book of Jonah. There's nothing else that you see. What you begin to learn about Jonah is the story of Jonah is actually the prophetic message to us, right? It's this crazy thing that God's doing that living out the life of Jonah, but saying something to us so significant. Because what he says to the Ninevites, while important, um, it's like, it's not, is it, that's not even that, it's not a message, it's not brimming with hope. It's not even that good of a sermon. He doesn't make fun of country music even once in it. How could it be good, right? Now, Despite all of this, something extraordinary happens here. The people of Nineveh actually respond to this message, right? Like, I don't know that we would, right? Like, Billy Graham never was like, here's my message for the day. It's super short, right? So, like, but they respond. They believe God. They respond to this message by humbling themselves, repenting of their sin. And before you know it, the whole city seems to be responding to this message, from the least to the greatest, the message even reaches the king's ears. Even the king humbles himself. He tears off his royal robes. He replaces them with sackcloth and ashes, which was a common cultural practice that demonstrated humility from that person. He cries out to God. This is really crazy. An entire city brought to repentance through the preaching of God's word, despite the messenger being like really this unfaithful and reluctant prophet. 
So, so what kind of response does God look for when his message is proclaimed? Well, we're given a picture of that here in Jonah and in Nineveh's response. God's looking for repentance, this concept that whatever direction you're heading, God's calling you from that, so you turn from that, but not only do you turn from that, you return to. So repentance carries this deep message of turning from, but also coming back to. And so God's desire when his good news of his gospel goes out is that his image bearers would respond in repentance and faith in Christ. So true repentance, though, it always has to start with this sorrow and lament for our sin, right? And, and more than we're lamenting like a specific list of sins, we're just lamenting rebellion and sin. We're saying this is this thing that we're born with, and it's not God's design. It's not how God wants to animate our lives. Sin does not animate our lives. It brings death, and God's saying in repentance, you're returning to the one who will animate your life, give you a quality of life and a quantity of life. So move in repentance because sin will cause that, because sin reveals death to us. So have sorrow and lament our sin. It involves grieving the fact that we've sinned against a holy God. And, and listen, this is so important. While repentance may start with us being sorry, repentance is so much more than being sorry. Sometimes being sorry just means that you're sorry that you got caught right? Repentance is so much more than that. Repentance involves this godly sorrow. It involves turning away from sin, returning to God, being grieved by our sin, so much so that we return in faith to Christ. So, so what did God do when the Ninevites believed the message of repentance? Well, we see this in verse 10, and this actually starts to give us a clue, a bigger clue, clue of God's message that, that, that Jonah delivers. So, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and, it, and he did not do it, right? So, so in order to understand what's happening here, in order to understand what, what, what God's up to with the Ninevites, we need to understand the role of prophetic announcements of judgment, right? Which is really precisely what this little sermon from Jonah was. So, so what's God's purpose in that, right? Well, if you flip back to another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, we find a clue, right? So, so God did this. He would speak to his prophets, and then he would, he would command them to deliver, um, and, and that is the bulk of the prophet's message. It's this prophetic announcement of this impending judgment, right? And so Jeremiah gives us this clue. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, 40 days, Nineveh, and you're doomed. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, the king and everybody else turning in humility, I will relent of the disaster that I intend to do. God relents of that disaster. So these prophetic pronouncements of judgment, they serve as a warning that judgment is coming, right? That's the part that we don't like, right? We don't like judgment. Some of us are good at it, right? But we don't like it when it's pointed at us. So they serve as this warning of judgment, but they also serve as an invitation to repentance, right? To cause people to turn away from doing evil and sinning. And this is exactly what took place here in Jonah chapter 3. God uses this prophetic pronouncement of judgment through Jonah to bring repentance of the Ninevites, revealing that God's desire 
for his image bearers is compassion and mercy, that he's steadfast in his love, that he's unrelenting in his pursuit of his image bearers. God is gracious in this to warn the Ninevites and us about sin and judgment and that it is coming but it's also this deep invitation to respond in repentance and faith. So let's just wrap this up with chapter four. And in chapter four, here's what we see. We, we see Jonah's response, right? And this is where this is so telling, right? This is, this is kind of where you go back to chapter two and you read that prayer and you go, yeah, I'm not sure Jonah meant that. Like, I'm not sure like that, that feels like a little bit of a prayer that maybe somebody like in a foxhole would pray and just like they're desperate. They're like, man, I'm stuck here right? So let's get to this, because Jonah does some crazy things here. So let's look at a few verses from chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? Jonah's so mad that the Ninevites respond in faith and repentance, right? Now, listen, I've been doing this for a long time. Some of you get to see this and experience this at summer camp, right? We, you see genuine expressions of, like, young people turning their life over to Christ I weep and I cry every time. It's so, you know, they're tears of joy. They're tears that, that, that expresses this deep gratitude that, that like my life is now wrapped up in this kingdom of God and this life with him. And now this person that I don't even know is responding in faith. And now their life is going to be wrapped up in my, like that's the right response, right? Jonah's displeased at the Ninevites' repentance and faith. He was angry. And, and when he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? He's like, God, did I not tell you that this was exactly what was going to happen? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are great, a gracious God and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So Jonah's not stoked about this result at all, right? In fact, he's angry that they repented. This was not the outcome that he wanted. Jonah did not get what he wanted, so he gets mad and throws a tantrum. He's thinking, God, these people are the worst. They're the worst. They don't deserve your mercy. They've done nothing to earn your grace. Hey, let me ask you a question real quick. Like, we have this conversation within what we do is following Jesus all the time, right? Like how many of you would say that fundamentally as a follower of Jesus, you can at least get on board intellectually, like ideologically, and maybe you even do this, but how many of you would agree that God has called us to be a people that would have compassion and mercy and love and serve the least of us? Raise your hand if you believe that all day long. Anybody not believe that? If you don't believe that, stand up and own it. That's awesome. Nobody, right? Now, how many of you believe and find it so easy to live into the fact that in the story of Jonah, what is revealed is that God also has compassion and great mercy on the worst of us. And he actually calls us to bring a message of hope and healing and restoration to all of his image bearers, right? So we see in Jonah is Jonah would somehow say, hey, these people out of sin. These people are others, and they don't deserve God's great mercy and compassion, right? And that's not all. 
right? He says another prayer in chapter 4, and in this prayer, he has the audacity. He actually blames God for all of this. He's basically saying, hey, this is why I went to Tarshish. I went to Tarshish because I was going to run from you because I knew that you would be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and full of, like, all of that. I knew that you would do this, right? I knew that you would not give the Ninevites what they deserved, and I wanted to see the Ninevites get their comeuppance, so I took off to Tarshish, right? He's justifying his sin and disobedience by blaming God because God's basically too loving and too compassionate for Jonah, and he's mad because that God did not do what he wanted him to do. He knew this is how the story would go for Nineveh because he understood God's character and nature. He knew that God was gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Church, you have to see the absurdity in this. Jonah didn't just have a problem with what God was asking him to do. He had a problem at the very core with who God was. He's like, God, you're just too loving and too compassionate for me because I've deemed these people as not worthy. And God was simply acting in a way that was consistent with his character and nature. So then God, God's question for Jonah, right? He says, verse 4, do you do well to be angry? And to be clear, God's not asking this question because he doesn't know. God's not like, I don't know the answer to this, right? He's trying, he's not trying to get Jonah to like fill in, fill him in on his motivations. He's asking this question to expose Jonah's heart to Jonah, to reveal to Jonah that he's been blind to his sinful motivations. This is just like all on repeat since the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve chose sin? That sin brought shame, guilt, and death. What did they do? They fled from God. They reject the clear instructions and word of God, and they flee from God's presence. So what does God do? Well, he asks a question. Where are you? And it's not like they picked the best hiding spot in the garden and God couldn't find them. He asks this question to expose their shame and guilt to them, to expose the fact that they were trying to run from God, run from his presence, fleeing him from his presence. It seems humans have been making a practice of this from the beginning of our history. Our story begins with running from God. But fortunately, that's not how it ends. Because like the great prophet Johnny Cash once sang, we can run for a long time, but I would disagree with him. God's not trying to find you to cut you down, but God is pursuing you in a relentless effort not to pay you back, but to win you back. And the good news for us is that finally God would send one in pursuit of us who, unlike Jonah, would obediently heed the commands of the Father, one who out of love and reverence for the Father would leave his heavenly throne, but not to flee and run in the wrong direction, but to transcend to earth and embrace God's great mess, or mission of reconciliation for him, to, be, to become one of his creation. The Father would send one whose word and deeds would call his image bearers back to life with God. God would send one who would not cower at the storms. Rather, he would command them because he creates them. God would send one who with full knowledge of what was to come would head towards his impending torture and death, not run from it. God would send one who would live for 
love and die in place of not just the least of us, but also the worst of us. God would send one who would face far worse than being trapped in a great fish. He would be forsaken by his heavenly father, stripped of his dignity, heaped shame upon, tortured and mutilated, betrayed not only by his people, but his closest friends, publicly humiliated and mocked. He would go alone to a cross, a cross way we all deserved but could not afford. Our sin kept us from that cross, but it hung him upon it, and he hung on it for us, and then he rose again, not just defeating a giant fish, but death itself. The point of Jonah is to cause us to look to Jesus, the true and better Jonah. Where Jonah fails, Jesus succeeds. And our life is wrapped up eternally in him. And that is good news for a people who are prone to run. That God would send in his relentless pursuit of us his one and only son, Jesus. Let's pray and let's respond in faith and in worship and in song, and in prayer, and we get this ultimate invitation. There's no deeper expression of what repentance looks like practically for us today than going to that table, going to that table where there's a deep invitation of life. Yes, there's a shadow of death over that table, but it's a victorious death, and so we get to go to the table in repentance, turning from all that God would have us not be about and returning to him. And we get to return to him because of the precious life and blood that he offered up in our place. So let's respond.